2: What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
1: Me!
3: Focus Features presents Back to Black.
2: I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
3: Experience the music and her story.
2: Know this. I ain't no spy skill.
3: Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. <laughs> big screen. I want
2: to be remembered
3: for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under 17, 90 minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
0: Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. I'm Annie Reese, and today we're talking about sour beer.
1: or it could really be like a, a two-parter sourdough part two or the prequel.
0: Oh, sourdough, the prequel. Yes. But uh, first right off
1: the top. Oh, hey, drink responsibly. Yes, disclaimer. Yeah we did it. yeah, there you go. Okay, um and we will do episodes about other types of beer in the future. Uh, uh-huh, but we wanted to start with sours because... Because before refrigeration and pasteurization, pretty much all beer was sour beer. A lot of things I read called it the original beer. Um, it was yet another accidental discovery that we, yeah, we kind of talked about it loosely, briefly in our sourdough episode because the discovery of beer is probably closely related to that of bread. Yes. Yes. But. Let's, let's go ahead and uh, ask the question, what is sour beer, Lauren? What is it? Mm -hmm. Uh, sour
0: beers are, are beers that contain a larger than usual amount of sour tasting stuff.
1: (laughs) That makes sense.
0: (laughs) Uh, Specifically of, of of sour tasting, uh, or, or acidic compounds um which taste sour yes uh while most beers hover around like a four on the ph scale sours tend to dip below that like as low as three and since the ph scale is a logarithmic one that means that they are up to sour beers are up to 10 times more sour than other beers the ph scale by the way was developed during the study of beer thing i didn't know
1: that's great of course it was
0: yeah the the sourness in sour beer is achieved with a combination of particular yeasts and bacteria that produce a number of unique flavor compounds as the beer ferments. And yes, friends, this means that this is another episode about bacteria poo.
1: Huzzah!
0: Oh,
1: we get to talk about this all the time. Fermentation uh, isn't so much more stuff than I realized.
0: Oh, uh, I really can't wait to do our pickle episode. It's going to be great. Okay, so... Beer basics.
1: 101. All right.
0: Yeah. To make beer, you heat grains and water in a mixture called wort. Wart. <laughs> and then you let the wort ferment. Um, that is, you either add yeast to induce fermentation or you let wild yeast get in and go to town. The yeasts eat some of the sugars in the grains, and they excrete three kind of categories of stuff. Um, alcohol, carbon dioxide, which provides the bubbles, and other compounds that flavor the brew. The yeasts that are active in making most beers are of the Saccharomyces genus, which which means sugar fungus, by the way. Sugar fungus? Sugar fungus uh. sounds so much less sexy or equally sexy as Saccharomyces. I don't know. Anyway, um, these, these critters do float around in the air, but it's most expedient to add them into a beer yourself, uh, either from a fresh new culture or from the barm of a previous batch of beer. And uh, barm, you might remember from our sourdough episode, is that foam that develops on the top of a fermenting liquid. Mm-hmm. It's also the root of the word barmy, meaning like foolish or, or ridiculous. And I cannot believe that I didn't put that together
1: in our sourdough episode. Oh, I didn't either. Barmy. That's it's such a great fantastic. word. I know. I've been trying to use that word more often. And <laughs> now, now I can have an annoying fact to throw in with it as well.
0: Oh, yeah. It's all on now. Yes. Uh, but so to make sour beer, you also want to involve some yeasts from the genus Brettanomyces, often called brett for short, e- either replacing or in addition to Saccharomyces. Taxonomically speaking, uh, Brett's are from the same order as Saccharomyces, but from a different family. Uh, their original habitat is the skins of fruits. Brett yeasts eat sugar. Um, including long-chain, more complex sugars that Saccharomyces do not, and they excrete acetic acid, which is the fancy name for vinegar, plus some other compounds that add flavors. They're also more enthusiastic than Saccharomyces, and so therefore brewers of wine and beer actually have a hard time keeping them out. Um, you know, that they, they can tolerate a more acidic environment, they can enter the process, therefore, and, and thrive during primary fermentation, during secondary fermentation in barrels, or even during bottling. Brett is sometimes called Dakara in the wine world. Um, and it is not, people there are not a fan of it.
1: No. And it's also sometimes called the beer ruiner. Oh. And it has like a, it can have a barnyard flavor component
0: yeah yeah one of the one of the uh flavor components it adds in there is frequently referred to as like yeah like barnyard or
1: like wet dog yeah and i have a friend named brett who i almost (laughs) 100 percent positive is not listening but if he is i got such a huge kick out of like all sentences that had brett in there about how always coming in and ruining everything it was funny
0: oh that's amazing hi brett hi hi brett Sorry about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sour beers also usually involve our old friends' lactic acid bacteria, mm-hmm. um, most often of the species Pediococcus and Lactobacillus. Sours frequently also employ a genus of acetic acid bacteria called Acetobacter, which, like Brett Yeasts, uh, excrete acetic acid.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Some beers, by the way, that are more sour than usual – Get that way with the addition of non-living ingredients, like a like passion fruit or something like that.
1: I like the term non-living ingredients. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, Sour beer is a pretty uh, large umbrella. It includes a lot of stuff. One way I saw it categorized in the beer business is um you've got long term, Sour beers, and these are beers that are fermented with a mix of um, specific bacteria and yeast. And then aged, usually in a barrel, for a specific amount of time, at least six months, but could be up to two years, could be longer than that. Uh, blended, and then typically allowed to re-ferment in the bottle to achieve the desired level of carbonation.
0: Mm-hmm. That's kind of the fancy way of doing it? Yes. That's like the real way with pretty heavy scare quotes around that?
1: Yes. Also, uh, it produces a, a more complex... Flavor beer is what I read.
0: It, it's pretty close to the to the méthode champenoise, yes. Actually, so it it's, is. Th- that's why that's why those 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 types of beers tend to be more expensive,
1: mm-hmm. as opposed to short term sour beers, which are kettle soured, and you you do this by adding lacto in the kettle to sour the beer in a matter of days. Before the beer lacto is boiled off and then fermented with brewer's yeast.
0: Yeah, uh, lacto being those, those,
1: uh, lacto, uh, lactic acid bacteria. Yeah, but we're friends, so I like to call it lacto. <laughs> um, and this I saw frequently described as a one dimensional beer. No, oh. So yeah. some, these are, you know, people who beer is their business and tasting beer is their business. So I'm sure that I probably, I could tell, but I wouldn't. Be too too you upset about care it. Care <laughs> too much about yeah. it because it's a beer and it's delicious. Yes, yeah, pretty much. Oh. Um, and sour beers have undergone a lot, a lot of growth lately. If you haven't noticed, yes. In two thousand two, they made up only fifteen entries at the Great American Beer Festival, but by twenty ten, that number was one hundred and nineteen entries. Yeah, and some brewers think that the term itself sour beer has been a part of the problem when it comes to convincing folks to try the product because sour beer is traditionally meant beer that's off or rotten and mm-hmm. it requires a leap of faith for you to try it
0: oh yeah. yeah i have a friend who refused to try sour cream until until adulthood Whoa. for this reason um and if you're if you're listening daryl i i'm glad that you've seen the light
1: we have a lot of friends we got messages for in this episode yeah um i had I thought at least that I had my first sour beer less than a year ago. Oh wow. At one of my favorite um huh. bars and the bartender described it as a vegetable beer and I immediately said, "Well, that well, sounds clearly. gross, but I've got to try it." And give me some of that yeah, horrible sounding thing. I've got to try this vegetable beer. And I tried it and I didn't like it because it I was expecting beer and it was like not what I think of. It's puckery. Yeah. Yeah, it was very puckery. It's actually one of my favorites now, though. I, I kept drinking it because I'm a straight cat. And I'm not going to throw anything away. <laughs> and, uh, it grew on me. And yeah, it's at Atlanta by Orpheus. Oh, Here's yeah. That's an excellent Atlanta. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But doing the research for this episode, I realized I've had a lot of sour beers. I just didn't, that's not how I thought of them. Right. Uh, and we, we will talk about that more
0: later. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: just be
3: me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under seventeen, not minute without parent, only in theaters May seventeenth.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, let's go to the way back. The way back. The way, way back. Like humans don't have wheels yet, but they have figured out that if you let grains plus water like hang out for a while, the result is maybe tasty. And definitely will make you feel away.
1: Mm-hmm. It's similar, like we said at the beginning, um, to sourdough. Brewers would wait and hope for a wild bacteria and yeast to work their magic. Uh, and they didn't really know that's what they were waiting or hoping for. Oh no, not no. at all. No, <laughs> but they knew that if they did. Spirits. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they didn't control the brewing process in this way, they did, they could distinguish between a good sour or a bad sour or rotten sour, mm-hmm. and they probably knew that there was a difference in flavor based on the season that this thing happened. This magical thing happened. Ah, yes. Some historians theorize that beer and the love humans have for it was the impetus for us to start doing agriculture at all. Oh, yeah. Which, if true, means beer has been around for uh, like ten thousand years. Ooh. We actually got a um, listener mail about this. So I'm glad I'm glad we're getting to discuss it. Yeah. The theory goes that based on the discovery of um piles of animal bones and large stone barrels that may have been used to brew like a grass beer hmm. at in a 11- oh, Weed wheat is a
0: grass. Sure. It's
1: true. Yeah. I for some reason I'm imagining just like handfuls of green grass. That's <laughs> totally inaccurate. <laughs> You're right. Um <laughs> uh, they found these things at eleven thousand plus year old temple ruins in southern Turkey. Um, and they think the humans may have settled down there to build a temple to worship more. And we all know the best way to get people to help you out when you're moving, or uh, building a temple, is <laughs> with food and beer bribe, right? Yeah, yeah, clearly. Yeah. So from there, you'd need to domesticate grains, not for bread, but for all your bribery beer. Oh. Yes. So according to this theory, beer came before bread, or at least in this particular instance. Sure, But it is just theory.
0: Yeah. Interesting. It's was, it was pre-written history by a long shot. So. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the bones, by the way, they could tell were like barbecued. So oh. it was like barbecue and beer.
0: Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, delicious. I always
1: help somebody move for I'm hungry for that. now. Okay. <laughs> yep. fear's aside, the oldest written record of beer comes to us in the 6,000-year-old Hymn of Ninkasi. And it goes as follows. Ninkasi, you are the one who pours out the filtered beer of the collector vat. It is like the onrush of Tigris and Euphrates. Oh. (laughs) Wow. Yep. That's beautiful. It is. Okay. Evidence found at a Mesopotamian trading outpost in present-day Iran indicates barley was being fermented there by 3,500 BCE. The Sumerians were making beer around that time, too. And a little south of Egypt, an ancient Nubian culture was fermenting an ale-like beverage called busa. Hmm. Yes. Ancient Sumerian texts mention eight barley beers, eight immer beers, which is a type of wheat, and three mixed beers. Hmm. And they described the experience of drinking beer in written documents as exhilarated, wonderful, and blissful. Sounds about right. Which,
0: yeah, yeah. Drink responsibly. <laughs> yes. Um but by the way, this was about the time that humans invented wheels for pottery and then for wheeled vehicles a few hundred years later. Um the first wheeled chariot probably happened around thirty two hundred BCE. So humans had beer for thousands of years before anyone had to worry about designated drivers. <laughs> well,
1: you know. That's that's very it's so interesting. I guess that makes sense because
0: Food is more important than moving stuff at a certain point,
1: yeah, still kind of kind of strange to think, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. the ancient Babylonians had records of twenty types of brews by two thousand BCE, and each citizen got a daily beer ration in an amount fitting to their social status. Wow, yeah, you could even be paid for work in beer. The ancient Egyptians had records of five types of beer and had a five thousand year old saying that went, May you have bread that doesn't go stale and beer that doesn't go sour. Huh. Which they think in this case meant rotten R- sour. Bad sour, not. Because all beer would have been sour. Sour at the time. Yeah. yeah. At the time, by the way, uh, beer brewing was done almost entirely by women. Mm-hmm. They also had over 100 medicinal prescriptions for beer. <laughs>
0: Again, a case of the like, they're like, we like this stuff, so let's
1: find ways to make this work. Right. Yeah. It makes you kind of. It tingly. makes you care That's true. <laughs> um, the ancient Greeks and Romans, though, they thought that beer was a barbarian drink.
0: They had so many great opinions. They really, ha-
1: they really did. Um, they were much more partial to wine. Surprise. Um, there are records circa 500 BCE of beer being brewed by Germanic groups, but they were kind of looked down upon. And here's a quote from historian Tacitus. To drink, the Teutons have a horrible brew fermented from barley or wheat, a brew which has only a very far removed similarity to wine. <laughs> Man, horrible brew. Harsh. Yeah. <laughs> Brewers at the time would add things like honey to enhance, like, the flavor and smell. Mm -hmm. A lot of the earliest beers were made with grains that still had the husk on them. So a lot of the ancient carvings depict people drinking beers out of straws.
4: Oh, yeah. Like
1: literal straws. Yeah. Ah. And they're very long. I I found the uh, carvings interesting. Very long straws. If we skip ahead to Europe in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church got involved in beer brewing mostly to make money. Many Christians viewed beer as a gift from God until the 19th century, brought with it concerns of alcoholism. That whole temperance movement we've talked about before. Yes, we have. Mm-hmm. It was also seen as less of a risk than drinking water because water had all the bacteria you'd, yeah. you didn't know. Makes, makes
0: sense. A lot of bacteria can't live in a a uh, environment that's as acidic or alcoholic.
1: As, as beer so right. yeah makes sense early North American settlers um, women were the family brewers in this case of beer using things like pumpkins artichokes and corn oh pumpkin beer goes way back I know oh we'll have to do an episode okay okay yeah different time yeah uh, and it was such a staple that bride ale was sold during weddings with all proceeds benefiting the bride <laughs> and during and after giving birth women drink Groaning beer. That's what it was called. Yeah. That's
0: not my favorite term.
1: Groaning beer. Groaning beer. That sounds like a haunted beer product. I I don't know.
0: And or something that you drink during Festivus, like during the airing of Grievances. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: That would be fitting. Yes. (laughs) Yes. In Germany, as early as the ninth century, hops were added to beer, and this practice slowly spread over the next couple of centuries. From there, brewers came up with some brewing guidelines and started mass-producing beer, as opposed to the then standard of just making your own.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the guidelines were adopted across Europe, and by 1516 is the generally agreed-upon date, uh, huh. Germany enacted the Beer Purity Law, which was meant to reassure the medieval beer drinker that all that was in his or her beer was hops, malted barley and wheat, yeast, and water. So that's... That's pretty far back. Yeah. Have these guidelines.
0: Well, I mean, you know, people had been working on it for what, like
1: 9,000 9, years at that point? I guess they did have a long time to think about it. Yeah. If we hop over to medieval Belgium, where many of the sour beer styles we enjoy today were perfected, uh, Belgian brewers would fill these huge troughs. Called cool ships, by the cool way. Cool ships. Cool ships. That's awesome. With wort, uh, the unfermented liquid that you, that will be beer uh that you get from mashing the malt you got from the barley. Right. Rest. We mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um and you always pulley them up into the high brewery ceilings where they kept the windows open so that these wild yeast and bacteria could float on in. And
0: and yeah, get get all up in the, the wart hanging out in the cool ships.
1: Yes. Sounds like a very fun process. Around this time, some of the styles of sour beers started becoming more defined. And here are a few examples, but don't be mad if I don't mention your favorite. There are a ton of them. Yes. Um The trough plus pulley plus window brewing method resulted in a lambic, which I also called a true lambic. And I've had a lot of these before I had my first, what I thought, sour beer in Atlanta about a year ago. So <sighs> I have been drinking sour beer for a bit longer. For for a for, for longer time than that. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Uh, You could, if you want, you can blend fruit into it. Or not. Or not, yep. After the wild bacteria yeast exposure occurs, the beer is barrel-aged for about six months to a year. And this is the oldest beer style in Belgium. And they usually age it in the wooden barrels because the breathable porous wood kind of acted as a breeding ground for all kinds of souring, funkifying bacteria. And it also helped with flavor.
0: Yeah, um, some of the oldest breweries in Belgium famously refuse to dust or even like remove cobwebs from their barrel rooms to avoid disturbing the natural colonies of microorganisms that are hanging out there.
1: That's kind of beautiful. It's like you got your own little tiny city you can't see.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> Make it here. Yep, just do, just doing the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. Pooping a lot. Delicious flavors. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure a true lambic is a single vintage, but sometimes older and younger vintages are blended together to create another style of sour that's called a guise. And uh, I think I'm saying that right. Um, These go through a secondary fermentation after they're bottled, leading to a kind of champagne mouthfeel and a more balanced acidity.
1: Mm -hmm. Another style is creak, 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 that is soured with tart morello cherries. That's so good. Yeah. Before hops were discovered and almost universally agreed upon as the thing to use as put down by the Germans in their beer purity law, um, that you, you used fruit or herbs for flavoring and bittering. Yeah. And I, yeah. When I was in Belgium, which is when most, I tried most of these. Mm-hmm. Sure. I enjoyed Minnea Creek and I think they made it, there was like a university there where the students made and oh. sold beer. Oh, to, that's great. Like, help pay for their school. <laughs> That's so cool. It was cool. I think it was a creek.
3: Uh,
0: in, in creek and other fruit lambics, by the way, the, the fruit is added during the barrel aging process and it sets off a secondary fermentation. Man,
1: champagne, all, all these throwbacks in this episode. It's great. There's West Flanders sour red ale where the acidification of beers was seen as something like a conservation method. Oh,
0: okay, sure. Yeah.
1: Uh the low pH keeping the not so good bacteria from propagating. Mm-hmm. Older, more acidic beer was mixed in with the newer batches to keep that bad stuff out. Huh. And then we gotta talk about the goza. Not to be confused with, with the other thing. C-
0: other thing that sounds a lot like
1: goza. Yes. But has more use involved in the spelling. Exactly. <laughs> Records suggest that in nearby Germany, because we're moving away from Belgium into Germany, the sour style beer called Goza was a local favorite in Leipzig. Which is a town 100 miles east of its hometown of Goslar by the 18th century. Okay. Gozas are known for their salty quality along with the sourness, Mm -hmm. which you get uh, with the addition of salt. What? 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 Oh, weird. Makes sense, yeah. And coriander to the malt before fermentation. Gozas. they undergo two fermentations as well. The first in the wooden barrels and the second in the bottle where a stopper is created out of the dead yeast are leaves. Oh I know. This one experienced a super, super high and then a super low. In terms of popularity. Yes. Yeah. In nineteen hundred there were eighty Gosenshinka I don't know, I think so. Um or licensed goza taverns in Germany. But after World War II, the last remaining goza factory was closed. A Leipzig brewery revived the Goza in 1946, but when the owner of the brewery died in 1969, the Goza went with him. And it wasn't until oh, the wow. 1980s, the reopening of a Gosenshinka started repopularizing the style, and it's currently making a major comeback. Oh, yeah. Uh, Google Trends data from 2011 to 2016 shows that searches for Gozas have outpaced that of sour beers, especially in the south, the weather is more inviting to this tart, salty beverage. But it, it's, like, trending, and it's super oh, – yeah, the yeah. chart is – the like, yeah. arrow is going up, up, up. <laughs>
0: it is definitely a personal favorite of mine. It's just real real weird tasting. It's got a yeah. lot of flavors. I like it.
1: It's good. Mm-hmm. You definitely need to – it's one of those things you need to go in and know what you're getting, I think, because otherwise you'll have an experience like Oh, me. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I always warn people. I'm like, this beer is salty. Yes. And they look at me, and I'm like, no, really, try it. Try it. Just know. Just know.
1: Yeah. Another German sour, the Berliner Weisse, was developed around this time as well, possibly in medieval Hamburg. But it was mostly enjoyed in, you guessed it, Berlin. Berlin. Yep. Weird. I know. And actually, the product is now a protected appellation in Germany, as in Uh. brewers making it outside of Berlin can't call it that. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of ridiculous and hilarious. Napoleon nicknamed this beer the Champagne of the North. Oh, wow. That's pretty... That's ni- nice words from Napoleon. I know. 18th century English brewing books typically had a chapter on how to fix sour beer. But again, it's it's hard to definitely say if they meant sour as in rotten or as in the flavor of sour. Mm-hmm. But it is around this time with the arrival of commercial refrigeration and bottling coupled with the ever increasing railways and routes and trains that made it easier to mass produce and sell beer there were 3200 breweries up and running by 1880 in the US
0: yes and some some of this uh some of this refrigeration type research was also and, and and you know the general spread of scientific inquiry was leading to some really interesting uh other research into microorganisms.
1: Exactly. In 1883, Danish scientist Imel Hansen reproduced pure yeast, the first of its kind, at Carlsberg Labs. Carlsberg? Yes. Like the beer. That Carlsberg. Dang. Yep. This meant brewers didn't have to depend on tricky, inconsistent wild yeast. hmm Similarly, Louis Pasteur's pasteurization meant that brewers could get rid of the bacteria behind the sourness if they so chose. And many of them did.
0: In the late 1880s, a few researchers isolated secondary yeasts, is what they were calling them, that that created those sour, funky flavors in beers, specifically in English and Irish beers. Then in nineteen oh three, bleeding into nineteen oh four, another employee of Carlsberg's labs, one um Niels Clausen, identified and published his research on one of these secondary yeasts, calling it Britannomyces Clausini, meaning British fungus and also, you know, giving himself a nice nice props.
1: Yes. And we had to retake this bit because I had a moment of insane excitement. That this could possibly be the same guy behind The the Clausen could be Clausen's pickles. It could be. We don't know that for sure. I'm going to look it up immediately after this. Yeah. So a lot of breweries went to work on isolating yeast strains and making them proprietary. Yeah. Uh, And this meant a a more consistent product that could be produced anywhere at any time without waiting, with your fingers crossed, on those wild yeast and bacteria. And that meant that sour beers became more and more rare. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, if you're looking at sour beer in the U.S., it should be no surprise to anyone that Prohibition... Kind of put a damper on things, uh, kind of slowed the whole beer thing down. In general, yes. Yeah. And by the time it was repealed, most breweries in the U.S. had shut down. Mm-hmm. One of the largest survived by making mere beer <laughs> or non-alcoholic beer. That's how um, most of them, any of the survivors, that's how they survived. Wow. Yeah. And post-prohibition, the U.S. government imposed very strict regulations on beer brewing that pretty much made it impossible for smaller breweries to weather. And it wasn't until President Carter lifted some of these regulations in 1979 that smaller breweries started opening. Yeah, And at the time, there were less than 100 breweries in the U.S. Today, the Brewers Association estimates that there are over 3,000. And a quick note about beer in Asia – Beer doesn't really have a long history in Asia. Uh, the oldest brewery in Europe, Germany's Bien-Stefan brewery was founded in 768 CE. Asia's oldest brewery is 200 years old and it was set up by the British for the British in the Himalayas. Japan's first brewery, modern-day Kirin, was established in 1869 by a Norwegian-American fella. And the second largest brewery in China, Tsingtao, only goes back to 1903 when it was established by German settlers. Hmm. Um, and this isn't to say at all that beer in Asia was founded by immigrants or anything of the sort. It's just that the history is very, very young in the region. They're much more into their wine and sake. Today, yeah. 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 Which we will talk about.
0: Yes. In a future episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, so oh, that's going to be a thirsty, thirsty episode.
1: Yes. Commercially speaking, it wasn't until the 1970s that Belgian-style sour beers were first available for purchase in the U.S. Even into the late 90s, and still now I hear it's just rarer, it wasn't uncommon for people to return cases of sour beer because they thought... It had gone bad. Yeah, they tried it.
0: They were like, oh, no, something's wrong here. Take it back.
1: (laughs) American microbrewers didn't start experimenting with sours until the 1990s when brands like Omegong, All the Gosh, and New Belgium Brewing decided to use a more Belgium approach to the whole thing instead of the English-style norm of the time. But they still weren't making sour beers as we know them. They were kind of one-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, some breweries were experimenting with adding fruit to beer, like New Glarus' Wisconsin Belgium Red, That was brewed with cherries or Southampton public houses sour style beers. But again, these were rare. Mm -hmm. You didn't, you didn't really find them in stores, but new Belgium decided to invest in a barrel aging program in 1999. And by 2001, La Folie, a blended sour aged in barrels won a gold medal at the great American beer festival. Oh yeah. It was one of the first of its kind brewed in the U S. And by a popular enough brewery that that word got out. Yes, word did get out. Port Brewing Company, whose owner had experimented with Brett, (laughs) the yeast, not the person, uh, and loved the flavor of wild yeast, followed suit on the West Coast. And as the craft beer movement took off in the U.S., so did sour beers. Even Miller Coors is experimenting with sours these days. 2010s, the festival of wood and barrel aged beer had 156 sours and a symposium about sour beers, a recent one, um, and how to make them attracted 200 brewers and they had to turn brewers away. They just oh, wow. didn't have space. Oh, that's
0: great. Mm-hmm. I mean, not for the brewers, but that, that, not yeah. for the brewers,
1: but that, yeah. Yeah. Nice. And a, a little fun fact that I ran across, Guinness, who is very secretive. About their brewing process claims that the sour note in their beer comes from three to four percent of old vinegarized beer that they store in wooden containers blended into each new batch. Which, if that's true, it's the most widely consumed sour beer in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
0: So we have some other interesting stuff to tell you uh, about organic chemistry. But first, let's take another quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressings, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.
2: just be
3: me. Amy Winehouse, back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters, May seventeenth.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, let's get into flavor science for a minute here. One way that you get scents and flavors is via chemical compounds called esters. And okay, organic chemistry. We can we can do this. We can get through this together, friends. We can. Okay, so in a yeast cell, like Brett, uh, esters are created by by enzymes when the cell is trying to get work done, but it doesn't have enough energy. To get work done, uh, cells have to make chemical reactions happen, ter- turning a bunch of raw materials or reactants into a bunch of uh, products that it wants, okay? Um, and sometimes those chemical reactions take more energy than is readily available, uh like well, let's say that you're trying to put a nail into a wall, right? Uh but all you've got is the nail and the wall and your bare hands. It's going to take a lot of work to get that nail in. Enzymes give you a hammer. Hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh like like in in that yeast cell or or in its cell membrane, these enzymes create esters which interact with the raw materials to allow the chemical reaction to happen at a lower energy buy-in. Hammer to nail the work gets done. For any professional organic chemists out there, I'm pretty sure that's what's going on, but, but please write in and let me know if I'm terribly wrong and lying to people. But in a nice
1: way, constructive. Yes. yes. Oh,
0: please, please do. Okay. All right. So, so you've got these esters that cells have created in order to do some stuff. They, uh, they hang out in or around a yeast cell until they're broken down by more other enzymes in order to help do more other work. In some cases, though, the rate of ester production is much higher than the rate of ester breakdown. And that's when you wind up with a whole bunch of a particular ester in the yeast cell's general environment. And esters are compounds, like I said, that trigger our senses of taste and smell. They're what give, for example, fruits and flowers their scents and flavors. A couple of examples. Let's take uh, ethyl hexanoate. It's a product of the growth process in both uh, saccharomyces and brett yeasts and it's also found in unripe bananas and pineapples.
1: Oh.
0: Um or or another another uh, ester ethyl syringate. It it comes from an interaction of alcohol with an acid that's naturally present in oak barrels. And it's also present in tobacco and figs. Okay. So 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 these these esters that are in various other foods and products that we run into and and that have sense because they have sense are stuff that happens in in beers. And they happen more often in sour beers than regular beers because esters are created from acids plus alcohols. And because brett and the bacteria in sours create acids, you get more esters in these finished alcoholic products. Makes sense to me. Yeah.
1: I always thought esters were those things that like... You put it under someone's nose after they've passed.
0: <laughs> I think that's where that, I think that's where that comes from. That, oh. that is, that is an ester. It's a, it's a, like little a scent, scent compound vial. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. They go into perfumes. They go into uh, artificial foods and flavorings. And yeah. And any and anytime that you're smelling a flower, you're basically just inhaling some esters.
1: I will be sure to ruin someone's romantic moment <laughs> the next time I see a couple yeah. smelling a flower. You're just inhaling some esters right now. Hey, just wanted to let you know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, ruin, ruin people's fun. That's great. <laughs> so all of these esters that are going to work in sour beers mean that uh, that although beers have been sour for much of history, making like a really good refined sour beer is kind of difficult. Uh, Brett's are notoriously unpredictable and get a lot of that barnyard taste into stuff, which not everyone is excited about. Um also some brewers avoid sours because once you welcome these yeasts and bacteria into your brewery you risk cross contamination um cross infection with your non-sour beers.
1: Right. Yeah. It's also quite um quite an investment.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. You have to wait. And, and all they'll... that time, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh and and for for this reason wineries and non-sour beer brewers generally want to get rid of Wooden barrels that have been infected with Brett and those souring bacteria, but sour beer manufacturers are super happy about taking them. <laughs> it all kind of works out. It does. Yeah. Uh, as as we've mentioned, uh, they're generally aged for at least a year. Uh, with with beer, kind of like Annie was just saying, uh, wooden barrels have to be watched, i.e., tasted um, very carefully because of the relatively low alcohol and high pH of beer
1: versus wine. Mm-hmm. So there's even. A Sour Beer Project, just like the Sourdough Project. There's so many crossovers. Their goal is to understand this, quote, microbiological mystery. Oh. It's, it's very similar to the sourdough project. They want you to like send in samples, and they're gonna analyze it and map it. So,
0: oh, that's wonderful. Look it up if you're interested. Yeah. Oh, and uh, a note about pairing sour beers. A note about notes. Uh huh? Oh. Uh So, so the the acidity of sour beers is really great for cheese courses. Mm. Um. Uh, also, also there's there's all that complexity and little salt twinges that help set cheeses off. Um, the more powerful sours are really great with with very powerful dishes that could stand up to them, you know, a barbecue, fatty grilled meats, and fish, mushrooms, distinctive shellfish like like crabs or mussels, um, and anything savory that you've made with plums.
1: Okay, plums and specific,
0: huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the more delicate sours are are nice with like spicy foods and salads and lighter proteins of mild, milder fish or chicken. Um, but you know, really, as as always, get get out there and try stuff and find out what pairings you like.
1: Yeah. There's no, well, there's very few <laughs> wrong there's, pairings.
0: There's a couple wrong ways to drink to drink a beer, but there's some things I personally would avoid. But
1: uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, works for you. <laughs> exactly. Well, that is our episode on sour beer. Um, we probably, there's going to be a video about this. Yes, we hope so. We're, uh, we're set to
0: go, uh, film at a couple brewers, mm-hmm. local, local brewers, uh, in, in the near future. And, uh, if, if that happens, then by the time this episode comes out, the video will probably be done. Yes. It's like time travel.
1: It is. It's a very fun game of, uh, prediction and chance.
0: <laughs> yes. Um and and we will absolutely do more other episodes about more other styles of beer. Yes. And uh get into a few of the fun facts that I was I was just like no, I can't go down that rabbit hole. I have to I have to recenter back back to sour beers. So, yeah. Really excited
1: about all of that in the future. Absolutely. But for now, let's read some listener mail.
0: Listener mail.
1: Chad sent us this note. I greatly enjoyed your episode concerning sourdough. The information helped me further appreciate my own sourdough culture, which sits beside the butter and yeast in my refrigerator. Her name is Pearl. Uh. And I recently realized that because of her, I've developed a strange habit. I made this culture from scratch, meaning I was able to experience the, quote, dirty sock smell at its start and am fascinated that it now smells like sweet buttermilk. So much so that I caught myself inviting my family to smell the culture as I attempted to <laughs> impart my excitement concerning this transformation. About midway through handing the mason jar to my dad, I thought, dude, this is weird. Don't make this a habit. <laughs> uh, anyway, love your show. Pearl seems to enjoy it as well as it gives her culture. See what I did there? Oh, Love it. Thank you, yeah. Chad.
0: <laughs> yes. And I don't know. I don't think it's that weird. If If we ever end up at your house... Please let us smell pearl.
1: Now it feels a little now, strange. Oh, now it feels weird.
0: <laughs> oh, I made it weird. It's okay. Okay. Uh, Megan wrote in response to our French food episode, when I was in college, I did study abroad for five weeks in Strasbourg, France. Yes. Uh, the professor that was with our group banned McDonald's. She told us that we didn't come all the way to France just to eat McDonald's. Well, my college roommate was also on the same trip, and we got a little homesick and decided to comfort ourselves with some Mickey D's. So as we were walking, bags in hand, to secretly eat our contraband McDonald's, of course, we ran into our professor, and of course, she reprimanded us. But it was totally worth it because it was so delicious, like a million times better than what they serve over here, hands down. No regrets about traveling to France to eat McDonald's.
1: We have had so many listeners... So many listeners <laughs> write in about experiences at McDonald's in other countries, especially in France and Japan. Oh. Which I find fascinating. I oh, love yeah.
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always the best. Um, if you, if you have a story like that or anything else that you'd like to tell us, uh, you can get in touch.
1: Yes. We have an email. It is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: We also are on social media. We're on Instagram at foodstuff and on Twitter and Facebook at foodstuffhsw. We hope to hear from you, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth.
2: Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right Rug Flooring.